What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Jefferson Navicki, poet, playwright, teacher, and archivist of the Maine Women's Writers Collection at the Josephine Applenap Library at the University of New England, Portland, Maine. Jefferson is the author of Antique Densities, Modern Parables, and Other Experiments in Short Prose, winner of the 2022 Maine Literary Book Award for Poetry, as well as the poetic novel, The Book of Transparencies, and the story collection, The Paper Coast. He has been the archivist for the Duna Barnes Literary Estate and teaches English at Southern Maine Community College. His plays have been produced in the Boston Theater Marathon, multiple times in the Maine Playwrights Festival, and in small venues across New England. So Jefferson, welcome. There's a tremendous irony here. We're talking about a collection of women writers from Maine, and we're two men, an old one and a young one. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we make bold to talk about these things, but it's such a fascinating collection and the work that you're doing, I think, is so important uh, that it really merits a conversation that is, at least for the moment, gender neutral. Um, so, first of all, who, who are you and how did you come to the job you have? Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me on. And I just wanted to mention that it's it is it's a good start for two men to be sitting around talking about women's writing, but I wish there were two million men sitting around talking about women's writing, and I, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't make a dent in all the people who have sat around and talked about men's writing. But it's it's really important to do that. How did I make it to the Maine Women Writers Collection? Well, as as you mentioned in my introduction, I started as an archivist at the Authors League Fund for the Juna Barnes uh, Literary Estate. Uh, in 2007. Then I moved to Maine and I uh, taught at SMCC for uh, Southern Maine Community College for probably uh, 10 years before I was lucky enough to to get hired at the Maine Women Writers Collection. And uh, I honestly pinch myself every day as I'm sitting in my workspace and I can look up and see the uh, library of May Sarton or go out and sit on Sarah Orrin Jewett's couch and call my wife and figure out what we're going to have for dinner later. And um, there's, there's definitely quite a bit of magic in here. I'm lucky to be a part of it. So what's its history? It was founded in 1959 by Grace Dow and Dorothy Healy, uh, which was then a part of Westbrook College. And Dow was a English professor and Dorothy Healy was a, I should say, charismatic administrator who became the, kind of the soul of the uh, Maine Women Writers Collection. And sometimes, in fact, we have a little phrase in our head that we ask, what would Dorothy Healy do in certain situations? Because she was just such a guiding guiding light to the collection. So that was 1959. 
they started, I think the first book that they collected was a Mary Ellen Chase book, or it was in the St. Vincent Millay. I can't totally remember that. It was one of those two. Uh, and then we've grown uh, slowly from there to, to include our current staff of uh, four people. The director is Jennifer Tuttle, and there's a curator and a metadata librarian and me. Westbrook College was a women's college? Yes. Yep. Two years, two-year women's college. It's now the Portland campus of the University of New England, but there's some really beautiful buildings back from that, from that period. And so it migrated into this library, uh, and the library is endowed. Yes, yes, it's permanently endowed. We, it's, we're lucky to, to have a lot of good financial support. And the collection is open to the public? Yes, definitely open to the public. Yes, and we, we um, welcome a lot of researchers who come in to work on different projects, but we are definitely open to the public. We love people to pop in and, and see different things, and um, we're always always willing to welcome people. So let's go back to the beginning again. Did the founders have a statement of purpose? The story goes that I have heard of it is that they went to an event, I think, at Colby College with two main women authors. I don't know who they were, but they took a, a, a bunch of Westbrook College students, and on the way back, they kind of hatched the idea that they there should be an archive that that collects main women writers. And there's there wasn't anything like that at the time, and there's still nothing like that now. And they were really revolutionary, forward-thinking women. But when you, when you say collect, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that you collect a book by any woman from Maine anytime anywhere? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, I mean, one of our things that we do at the Maine Women Writers Collection is try to collect every book published each year by a Maine woman writer. And that was that was something that was, you know, pretty reasonably doable back in the 1960s when the the collection was founded, but uh, we have a kind of a fortunate problem that there are a lot more books being published now and a lot more main women writers publishing things. But we try really hard to uh, keep abreast of Maine's diverse literary scene and, yeah, buy as many books as we can from main women writers and keep so, them in the collection. So from two books to how many now? Oh, thousands, thousands. I'm, I'm, looking into our book room, which has a bunch of those sliding bookshelves to compact space. And this is the kind of place where there's always a pile of books somewhere that that needs to be put on shelves or taken back and put on or something like that. So the collection then uh, has one level of method, which is simply the physical the physical books. Is there a group of people that help you choose? No, we don't really choose books as so much as we just, whoever is publishing books, we, we will buy them and add them to the collection. Like the, the curation part goes into our manuscript collections. So those, those will be a bunch of manuscript materials from, you know, say Sarah Orne Jewett that uh, we have processed according to correspondence and maybe other biographical material or things like that. And those are the, those are the collections that require quite a bit of attention and processing and care to, to, to be able to share with the public. But the books themselves don't circulate. Right. Yep. They don't circulate. Anybody can come in and read them in our reading room, but yeah, we don't circulate. 
And if any woman writer is listening to this broadcast and wants to send her books, you will welcome them. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Reach out, contact us. If you have other manuscript material, we're always, we're always interested to, to talk to people. So let's talk a little bit about the manuscript collection. How did, how did that begin? There's a step from collecting the books themselves to, to essentially going in and finding the manuscripts, uh, persuading people to part with the manuscripts, compete with other libraries that, that in certain cases will also want those manuscripts. How, do you, how did that, what was the history of that to begin with? Well, I think that that goes back to Dorothy Healy again. And she was someone who keyed into the power of primary source materials, like the the power of, there are quite a few pictures of one of our, one of our objects in the collection is the, is the nightgown of Edna St. Vincent Millay. And there are pictures of her holding that nightgown up. And she knew about the, the power of primary sources and the, the, the magic that can come out of holding someone's letter and seeing their handwriting. And there is a lot of magic that you can get out, of course, out of books and reading, but then there's a whole other uh, treasure trove of historical material when you, when you get into letters and manuscript drafts and photographs and photographic albums and that kind of stuff. Dorothy Healy, she wasn't a librarian by training, uh, she was more of a uh, well, administrator at the university and someone really connected with the writing community. So she would she brought people in, uh, and at some point she ended her position as curator in the I think the '90s. And then there were a few different curators who came in for short periods of time. Uh, and at some point, uh, we hired Callie Gurley. She's a trained archivist, and she kind of began the process of turning it into uh, a literary archive that is is the is the thing that it is today. And uh, we've had some curators past Callie that have carried on that lineage. So, tell me the difference between the curator and archivist. The curator is is someone who is kind of looks to acquire things, papers out in the world. Our curator Sarah Baker is the person who kind of runs the everyday doings of the collection. And the archivist, my position, is the person who processes the materials, the manuscript materials. So I'll, I'll get a whole bunch of correspondence and I'll put them into the right order and I'll read a little bit to see if that will link with some other parts of the collection. And so that's mainly hands-on uh, the manuscripts for the archivist. So... Let's still go back to the collecting of books. Uh, are you successful? I mean, you know, today, I think more books are being published by women than by men. Uh, so that whatever was any kind of bias, um, that seems to me to be, have been long gone. I would say probably that the editing establishment, the publishers who acquire those books, are predominantly women. And so the book industry, the publishing industry, it's, it's come a long way from the, the gentleman in tweeds and the two martini luncheon and the casual advance. But I mean, it's not for dearth of input that we have an opportunity to, to collect. And I would think there would be boxes and boxes of books that need to be cataloged and included. 
Well, I mean, I think you you have some good points there. Uh, And one of the things that I was, as you were mentioning that I was thinking about, there's one thing is is the the pace of the publishing industry, which is sort of like a speeding train that uh, is fast moving. And then there's the, the, the pace of history, which is always much slower and kind of works behind the scenes. And it, to me, it, it seems really important to kind of, particularly as uh, a cisgender white man, to be in a position of collecting women's work and kind of service service to women's writing and advocating and caretaking for them. Like that is the kind of thing that matters to me certainly right now, even if even if the chain the faces of publishing is changing a little bit. Uh, it still seems very important to collect uh, women's work and share it. I wonder if there are people collecting women's editors or editors' papers in general. It would be an interesting thing. That's, the, that's a good question. Yeah, the correspondence would go two ways. Any correspondence I had with editors, they generated for the most part. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are. I'm sure they're in archives yeah. places. And and boy, you could find some good gems of information when you, when you can get to a good editor who has a good relationship with the writer. I mean, that's, that's, that is a special relationship. So the manuscripts now are discovered. Uh, are they discovered and donated by the writers themselves or by the children of those writers who suddenly have all these boxes and they don't know what to do with them? How does it, how does it work? Yes, both of those, all of those. Yeah, uh, sometimes we we get material from people who have passed away, and their children contact us, and we we uh, work in that way. Sometimes we set up arrangements uh, before people pass away. Sometimes, well before people pass away, we have the uh, papers for quite a few um, living writers. Betsy Scholl and B. Gates were both poets both still publishing lots of things, uh, novelist Monica Wood, Donna Loring, the Penobscot representative to the Maine legislature. So we collect a lot of living writers too, but then then we, we do also kind of create relationships in the in the community. Sometimes we we uh, we work with relatives that maybe want to give us something but they don't know what to give us, or sometimes they they're a little leery about giving things to us. And then that's where you know, the director and the curator kind of step in to kind of work with um, what they might be able to give us and what sometimes there are restrictions on things that are given to us. Like maybe a certain series isn't visible until somebody has passed away or maybe that the author has passed away in order to maintain privacy rights. Right. So uh, manuscripts can be anything from drafts associated correspondence, love letters, uh, oh, yeah. notes to self, um, responses to readers. Not all writers have a sense, uh, an archival sense. Uh, a lot of people throw their stuff away. And are ha- and happily throw them away. Yes, yes. I think that that's totally true. I, I, I remember a time when I was talking to the poet Betsy Scholl at an event and she was talking about she wanted to throw these her her journals that she had written poetry in out, and I I didn't want her to throw them out, but she was very happy to throw them out. Uh, so yeah, I mean I think sometimes that people want to to get rid of 
their material. And you know, as an as an archivist, I always want to collect it and to keep it and see what people might be interested in the future. Yeah, it's not it's not always um, uh, innate in in people's personalities. So the writers are curating themselves before the material even comes to you. In a way, that is, if they're living. Yeah, if if they're living, yes. Uh, I mean, there's there are some times where we go into writers' houses that are being cleared out, and there are times where we can kind of collect the things that we think that would be part of our good part of our collection. But uh, that's that's a rare occurrence. Usually, a writer goes through and gives us certain things that they think we would be interested in and they would like to part with. Yeah. How far along are you in the archival process? Are you way, way behind? I'm always behind, Peter. I feel like I'm always behind. It's the kind of job where I I am always, there's always um, quite a, a list of things that I could be doing and there's a basement full of archival collections that I need to go down and process. And I just finished processing the Elizabeth Coatsworth papers that took me uh, two two plus years, and some of that was COVID time, but two plus years to get through this uh, collection that started at seven boxes. And by the time I finished, it was 47 boxes, 46, 47 boxes of lots of lots of material. And she was someone who just saved everything. So we have things from her library card from the Wiscasset Library to journals about when she was going through leukemia and lots of, lots of, lots of interesting things. So you index and, and describe. Yes. Yeah. So that's really part of my job. But that literally there are folders that I'll, I'll write a description on uh, that folder about if it's, if it's, you know, literally the um, library, Wiscasset Library card, 1968, something like that. And uh, sometimes if it's a little bit more complicated, I'll try to to write a name of someone who might catch people's eyes uh, that a researcher might be interested in. So there's a little bit of guesswork involved in, in archiving and writing on folders to think like, what would people be interested in uh, in this folder to, to, to get them to look inside it? This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast and archived on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming live at WERU.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal. I'm speaking today with Jefferson Naviki, archivist of the Maine Women's Writers Collection at the Alplanap Library, University of New England. It's a strangely intimate exercise. Oh my gosh! Yes, you're you're told that's the exact word that I often think about. It's a very intimate process. You're, you're messing. You're messing in their secrets, and they're not there to defend them in a way. Whether they've given them to you or not, there are always things that we don't want to be shared, and yet you have access to the deepest, darkest articulation of all their inner inner feelings, whether they've been <laughs> been. been turned into a book or a poem or not. Yes, you're totally right. And I mean, I think that that intimacy gets into, you know, I, I feel like I have a real connection with these women whose work I process. And there are, there are times when I get to the end of a collection and I'm finished 
working on it and has to go on the shelf and I miss spending time with them and I miss reading their correspondence that I've watched over decades happen with a particular person. And sometimes it feels like I would like to invite them for tea or stop by their house for tea or something. And then I have to be like, oh, wait a minute, they, they died 30 years ago and I can't do that. But I mean, there's a the real sense of, of yeah, intimacy is, is the right word. Is there a danger of falling in love? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, is there, is there danger? I definitely feel like I fall in love with these writers. Um, and I, I guess love is always dangerous in a certain way, especially when you realize they're no longer living. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so is it a white glove kind of job? And are you digitalizing these these materials as you go along? Yes, yes. We are definitely digitizing materials. And that's that's a slow process, but it's an important one for us. And we're, we're digitizing. Often we will digitize for particular uh, inquiries where people see uh, the finding aid online and they'll ask for a particular item and I'll digitize that and send it to them and we'll keep it on our servers. But we're also working on digital software to be able to share things on the internet in a, in a fast and easy way. You're scanning manuscripts as you go through. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm the person who scans a lot of things. I I can't really scan usually whole manuscripts, but there'll there'll be the kind of there'll be a request for a maybe a particular letter, and I'll scan the three pages of that letter and send it to someone. But it definitely is a white glove kind of place. If we have white gloves, if people want to wear them, although you only really have to wear them for photographs. But it is sort of fun to put on white gloves pick up some photographs. So in some of our conversations, you talked about the, something called Camp Moimodayo. What, what's that? Yes, Camp Moimodayo. Yes. Yeah. Right, that's it. That's uh, a particularly strong photographic collection. And that's a, it's a girls camp in Limington, Maine that was went from 1907 to 1972. Uh, and it has hundreds and hundreds of large format black and white photos from the camp days so the, the days where there was a camp photographer who would go there and capture every activity of every of every year and we're actually working with some former campers who were there in the 40s and 50s and they contacted us and they want to create this photographic montage on a wall in the building that is on the site of the old camp so we are scanning bunches of these old photographs from Camp Moimadeo, and it's it's a real beautiful process to see these lake photographs, people swimming uh, in this pristine lake uh, out in Limington. It's it's a real fun collection, especially when summer comes around. I often think, I wish I could be swimming in that lake. What was the rationale for accepting that collection into into the archive? I wasn't around when they, they got that particular collection, but we do particularly try to keep an eye out for girls' camps, which there certainly were a lot of summer camps in Maine, and we always were uh, kind of looking for Maine girls' camps. And this was a particularly good one because of the both the record keeping and then all of the photographs. And it must have been there, you know, must have been a, a connection between one of our curators and someone who, who knew that we would be interested in that kind of material. Amazing, really. You know, that's it's like the, the film archives in Bucksport. You know, this secret place that is an astonishingly powerful reservoir of culture, of popular culture mm-hmm. across time. 
And as moving pictures came in, you, you have a place that suddenly says, we have all this advertising films. We have all these amateur films. We have films of family reunions. We have industrial films and early documentaries in Maine. And they're all there. They're being kept brilliantly. They're in freezers to make sure that they don't deteriorate. Another one is uh, at the uh, Penobscot Marine Museum. Magnificent collection of, of still photography and glass negatives all across the board. These things are, are real treasures. Is it an innate human quality or at least to want to preserve and hold on to these things? I mean, we live in a throwaway society. What's going on here? Boy, I, that you get to the heart of the question. What is going on here? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, you're, you're certainly speaking to a, someone who is biased or wants to keep uh, as many of the important things as possible. But there is a, a feeling that people definitely throw things away a lot more. And, and maybe you don't want to keep stuff in your house. I mean, I think, or, or, or you want to give it to a museum uh, who wants to, to keep things in, in a better condition than maybe you would. I, I'm I'm thinking of uh, sometimes my my wife and her family. Her family calls her the family museum because she just wants to collect all the things in the family that uh, that are important to her and to us. And I think that that instinct is um, is really important. And if 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 you can lucky enough to visit a place that that holds on to the past like that, I think you're in for a real treat. Well, there's the whole tradition of family albums. Uh, my father was an album maker. I, he, I can remember him to this day sitting with a card table with the little clip and little things in the corners and pasting these things in the album. I kept wondering, what is he doing? This is absolutely absurd. Um, and it takes so much time to do that. Exactly. Too. But, oh my gosh, are they magical? There are, We have, you know, some scrapbooks that are this thick with that really uh, dark black paper with the glued on edges and you turn it and you see a beautiful silver plate print written and underneath it in some kind of like a silver pen you'll write the year and where it was and there's just something about that that just jumps off of the page every three or four years i'm asked because i'm the oldest so i sort of know the the players better to sit down on the floor and turn the pages and sort of tell stories out of the stories that each photograph reveals. And children are sitting around looking at these people from a place that they have absolutely no idea because they came from away. We, we, everybody moves. Everybody leaves the place they were born. So you have all these archival materials about adventures or, or people who are part of your bloodline and your, your cultural tradition and they're strangers, except for these fragile, fragile documents. Yes, and I, that as you're as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking about the uh, Josephine Peary scrapbooks, who who is an Arctic explorer, and there are photos in there of her time in the Arctic, and uh, or maybe on a particular a photo, particular photo I'm thinking of on a on a ship, and there's someone kind of whole, hanging on to the mast, and I often think something like I, you know, somebody, I wish somebody would tell me what the story is of that photo. Uh, and if you could make it up, probably wouldn't be as good as the real story. But well, that's true. Um, I, I think, I think that it's your, your, uh, your family is lucky to have 
you know, the connection with the photo and then someone to explain the photo, because often we just have the photo and you're lucky if you have a historian who can interpret it. Often there isn't. And you're just left to wonder what that story is. Yeah. And of course, this is what museums do uh, or historic houses do. They they're they're there to try not just to, to preserve a moment in time or a family life from a period or a place. But then you you have exhibits that are pulled from all these archival materials. Uh, And the question is, how do you engage the public to understand that? How do you how do you do that? Do you do exhibits there? We do do exhibit. Yeah, we we do small exhibits in in the archive. We have an exhibition case uh, and we have another one down at our Biddeford campus that we curate exhibits. At the moment, there's one in there of recent acquisitions of artist books, which is a, something that we're kind of branching into. Uh, and they're particularly beautiful to look at. Like they'll, you open and they'll kind of spread across the whole case and with different vibrant colors. And yeah, so we we do we definitely do curate some exhibits. It's uh, if you really if you really are are eclectic the way we're talking about, there's so much that is also part of it. I mean, there are ships' logs, but there are also laundry lists. There's children's drawings. How many of us have the drawings that our children made when they're two, three, four, five, and six? And in the end, maybe the children hold on to those things, maybe they're not, maybe they end up in the in the tag sale, maybe they end up in the trash. It's, it's again, it's a whole nother part of how material culture it reveals the essence of our lives. That reminds me, so as you're talking about the different, the laundry lists of, uh, uh, one of my projects was uh, Kate Barnes' papers, who was the first poet laureate of Maine, and, and she was just someone who would write on all kinds of different things. Uh, and she, there are, there are grocery lists, and she'll scrawl a poem on the back of a grocery list and you'll see that she was buying milk and apples and then there's a little poem uh, that is on this piece of paper and it's 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 hard to describe the charm in that experience that's it's marvelous so let's let's talk about these individual women pick some out and give us some anecdotes that you've discovered or stories or the valuables that you you've uncovered in your in your research well, great. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So um, I was thinking about sometimes people ask us if we only collect published writers, uh, and we definitely don't. And we 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 will collect unpublished and unpublished. And one of some of the most uh, interesting things that we have in the collection are our diaries from uh, kind of everyday Maine women. And I'm thinking at the moment of the Miraloji diaries. Uh, who was a single woman living in Limerick, Maine, and she was born in 1859. And we have our diaries a few different years. One of them is in 1934. She was 75 years old, living by herself, somewhere near, somewhat near her son. But she was out there splitting wood every day, and she'll write about how much wood she split. And she's out in the garden doing different things. Uh, and there's there's kind of a 
delightful drama about she lives near this pond and the frogs are so loud that she can't sleep at night. She has to go onto the couch and she'll write something like spend another night on the couch because of the frogs. And then she hires a, a local boy to try to get rid of the frogs. And you follow all of this in the diaries. And it's sort of uh, an amazing glimpse into uh, what rural life in 1934 Maine was. So a lot of those things, I think, are some of the real values of our collection. Well, it's sort of interesting. It's sort of a catalog of the mundane in the moment. But after the fact, it's not. It's a document of life. I mean, if you began to collect all my to-do lists, it would be, it would be sort of an interesting study of all the things left undone. So <laughs> there, is a kind of, there is a kind of time thing that, that changes the value of these things probably pretty quickly. Because, as we know, progress. And so we, we lose sight of these things very quickly. And so these are little insights that are left behind. Who, who else? Well, let's see. Well, Sarah Orne Jewett is someone who uh, lots of people are, are uh, attracted to our uh, collection because, because of uh, some of the material we have from her. Mainly our material is from 1881 to, to 1906. In there, 1896 was when she published Country of the Pointed Furs. For, for a small literary archive, we have for quite a few letters uh, to and from Annie Fields, which was Jewett's uh, partner. And that really reveals uh, the depth of their friendship and love together. Uh, there's... Uh, we have a poem that Jewett wrote when she was 14 years old. Uh, there's some letters to and from her typist, Abby Bede. They start with kind of business-like, I'd like you to do this kind of thing, and they end towards um, Jewett asking Bede about maybe a, an opinion on a certain story or something like that. So certainly Sarah Orne Jewett is someone who, who catches a lot of people's attention. Well, let's just think about that for a minute, because... As a reader, the only voice I've ever heard of Sarah Orne Jewett is, you know, the pointed furs, and it's a very personal voice. It's a it, the charm of that book is the is its personality and its its observations. Are these personal notes any different? Can you sense the voice of the writer in the everyday voice of the the journalist or the diarist? That's a very good question. I mean, for one thing, I totally agree with you about that voice in the country of Pointed Furs. Like that, that narrator's voice is something like nothing else that I've ever read. Maybe it's my own imagination, but I'll read letters, and there sometimes will be as as small as just a page or something. But I can I can hear it. You know, I can hear that voice in there. You know, I, I, I it's it's certainly more casual, and it's not as crafted and sculpted as her work, but. Um, yeah, you I mean you can you you hear the voice. You can. It's not it doesn't take much of a leap to know that this was this person who wrote this other work. Well, and particularly if you have the intermediary stages, where that you have you have the mundane lists, but you or and then you have the diaries, but then you have the drafts, and you have the the edited drafts, and you have you sort of begin to hear and see what's put in, what's left out uh, over the creative process which is fascinating. I, I think it would be very interesting for other writers to sort of understand and, and see, if only to validate their own process. 
Sometimes when we get some journals from writers and you can actually see their margin notes or crossing things out, or when an editor will come in with a red pen and take certain things out and make a note, I mean, that's, that is the stuff I think that is real gold. And when someone will, will make a little note about how much they love this passage in the, in the margins. Well, and also their books, the books they read. What did they write? Back in the day, of course, people wrote in the margins of books a lot more than they, I think they do today. Some people are chronic. Most people are not. But the fact is that when you write in a book that moves you and you're responding to the voice, it's a correspondence and it's a dialogue. And that would be revelatory right there to be able to see she's, she's reading Jane Eyre and all of a sudden she writes something in the margins that then affects the work that, that she's involved with. Uh, talk more about Jewett. Well, I, th- I should say I'm not a scholar on Jewett. I, I just love that that book. I love lots of her books as an archivist with a collection. When we have a collection of Jewett, there are a lot of, of things that, that kind of jump out at me from her life. That We have some uh, receipts from her, her father's business, and uh, there's a receipt uh, where they went to a hotel, and you can see the itemized uh, how much it was on a certain day, and I wish I could remember how much it was, but it's some obscenely low amount of money to, you know, like $18 to stay a night and have a couple meals, and you see it on this little letterhead. So a lot of the magic in Jewett comes out of seeing the handwriting to me and seeing the documents that kind of made up her life and then imagining somehow in some kind of swirl of magic like that happening and then translating into the books that uh, that so many of us know and love. But she was not a one-book writer. She was not a one-book author. She has an herb. She has a... How, how many titles? Oh, yeah. There, do you have them all? We do have them all, yes. Um, how, I don't know offhand how many there are, but we have um, a lot of first editions, a lot of signed copies. We have a lot of copies from or we at least have a few copies uh, other books that Jewett has signed uh, that we have kept in our library let's pick another one uh you mentioned once uh, uh Celia Thaxter yeah Celia Thaxter um she was born in 1835 and grew up on the Isle of Shoals uh went on to host uh, a hotel on Appledore Island that was a a well-known salon, literary salon for Nathaniel Hawthorne, Longfellow, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Child Hassam, and Sarah Orne Jewett. Uh, she was a poet and a painter, and she has some of the most beautiful things that in our collection that she she would hand illustrate her volumes of poetry and uh, hand painted different colors. Uh, so you'll open sometimes you'll open up a book. And over one of her poems, she has, in the most finely drawn hand, well, there will be a, a, maybe a little image of a crane flying across the water or a, a, or a strawberry plant that kind of goes over the top of the poem and sits there and you open it and it's just this explosion of red on the page and when you it's almost a feeling like how is there this color that you open the page and uh, there's this painted poem and we have also some um, pottery that she hand painted Uh, and she was just an incredibly talented artist and that particular collection when you open up those books to see the 
the hand-illustrated poems, there's some real magic in that. And researcher will often will come to our collection just to look at those particular issues. Well, it's interesting what you're talking about is a salon. You're having artists from all around the world come and congregate in Maine. And that tradition went on and on. It still does in the sense of writers coming here as and painters, of course, as well, because of the scenery, the quality of life, access to nature, uh, and, and sort of the camaraderie of encounter. I mean, uh, um, my wife's grandmother was a, a novelist of some repute. She won a Pulitzer Prize, and she was in Chicago, and she came to Maine by virtue of attending a kind of writer's workshop, not so much about craft, but just a kind of congenial circle of writers that use the summer as a way to discuss things that they necessarily couldn't back wherever they came from. There's something about that that, uh, of course, it leads to the proliferation of MFA programs and writers' workshops all over the world. That phenomenon still goes, goes along, but Maine had its history of that. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast and archived on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming live at WERU.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal. I'm speaking today with Jefferson Naviki, archivist of the Maine Women's Writers Collection at the Alplanap Library, University of New England. There's Definitely a, an appeal of coming to Maine to work in the summer. Yeah, I, I, I love that story. Who was your wife's grandmother? Her, her name was Margaret Eyre Barnes. The, the other thing that's interesting to me about this is that the documentation of those is a whole nother subject, isn't it? That little gathering that you talked about uh, where you put Child Hassam and Sarah Orne Jewett and, and Longfellow, for God's sake, in the same same room. Uh, what what was that like? That must have been fantastic. Gosh, wouldn't wouldn't you love to know that? You know, they all kept journals, so there may well be descriptions of encounters or anecdotes that that go along. What about um, women illustrators of books? We don't really have very many. I'm trying to think of illustrators. I don't think we have very many illustrators. We do have artists, um, book artists. We have. Rose Marasco is a photographer who takes particularly narrative um, photography that sometimes even speaks directly to some material in the Maine Women Writers Collection. We just acquired the papers of Rebecca Goodale, who's a book artist uh, who lives in Freeport and still creating a lot of great material now. So we, we definitely have other material in the collection besides writers, but you know, we kind of stick mainly to writing. Were there binders? That's a whole other thing. Book binders, those beautifully tooled covers of books in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Mm. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful things. You know, there may be women who've been doing that for years and, and nobody, nobody knows, nobody really knows much about the history of binding anyway, I, I suppose, except some pretty esoteric. Yeah. I would, and that's and that's a history I would love. I would love to know some more about that. Um, in an earlier conversation uh, from the Pointed Furs with Gordon Bach, he talked about Ruth Moore, and I confess I did not know anything about her. I knew nothing of her, 
and he spoke so uh, enthusiastically about the quality of the writing. Uh, and I think he sang a song that he'd sent set lyrics uh, from some bit of writing that she had done. You have Ruth Moore collection. Yes, yeah, we have a Ruth Moore collection. Uh, it's it's quite thrilling to me. Uh, there are some scrapbooks that Moore kept herself when her, some of her books came out, particularly one from Spoonhandle in 1946, where all the clippings and the reviews and the photographs. Uh, we have her typewriter, this beautiful sky blue typewriter. And she's someone who I also didn't, when I moved to Maine in 2007, I didn't know Ruth Moore at all. Uh, and it was really, she. I mean, she's someone who I have a particularly strong connection with the, uh, with the collection. When I moved to Maine, I remember this blue bumper sticker that said, I read Ruth Moore, very particular font. Uh, that was on a car, and I later knew that that was uh, that was the work, good work of Gary Lawless, who is who was keeping uh, her books in print through Blackberry Books. But that particular "I Read Ruth Moore" was on a bumper sticker of a woman who I asked, "So who is you know who is Ruth Moore?" And it turned out that this woman was going around and buying as many Ruth Moore additions from library book sales as she could. And when I heard about that, she told me about Ruth Moore. It sounded like such a fascinating story and the books were so good. And I mean, the, the short stories is that I ended up marrying that woman and she introduced me to Ruth Moore. And I felt like Ruth Moore is kind of like a sort of part of our family because of the story about how Sarah and I met and how important Ruth Moore was to me. And then at some point when I found myself working at this job at the Maine Women Writers Collection and there's her typewriter or something, it's, it, was, it was a moment of like, wow, that is that is some good fortune. Jeff, do I have this correctly? Uh, Ruth Moore introduced you to your wife? <laughs> yes. Well, not not the physical Ruth Moore, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about her career? Because it's it, it really is, I mean, she was an extremely prolific and very popular writer. Yes, she was. Well, she was, she was born in 1903 on uh, Gotts Island, and she lived there for a few years before the family moved to the mainland. So she was present at this very special moment in time where there was a really strong island culture and her, her father was the postmaster and a lobsterman and it was a really vibrant culture on God's Island. And then soon after that, um, it, it went away and they, they had to leave the island. But she wrote about that for much of or quite a bit of her, her early books and particularly uh, Spoon Handle, which was her 1946 book that uh, was on the bestseller list and became a movie Deep Waters that she hated, uh, but gave her a lot of money uh, from Hollywood to to uh, move back to Mount Desert Island and build her house and uh, create her life there. Mm-hmm. But she she has has such a, an ear for, for dialect, so funny, so sharp. There are many, many phrases uh, would all read and you almost kind of chuckle out loud because she just gets that uh, uh, a, a couple moments of dialogue kind of perfect. Uh, I once did a, some reading in commonplace books and also uh, local cookbooks. And local cookbooks were frequently assembled by the women of the church 
uh, they would bring their recipes together. And, and in many cases, there would be narratives. They'd write anecdotes. They'd put down sort of, they'd contextualize with little introductions to this uh, recipe for chowder or whatever. Do you have any of that kind of material? Yeah, we do. We do have some cookbooks. Uh, we we don't have any manuscript material of cookbook writers, do we? I'm trying to think about all of the different material. We do have a pretty good cookbook collection. My colleague is 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 kind of our cookbook expert. I wish she was. She had gone home for the day. I could ask her. Huh. Uh, let's talk now about collecting in the present. You mentioned about alluring. You mentioned Betsy Scholl. You mentioned B. Gates, a dear friend of mine, whose current work I, I've read some and which is just astonishingly interesting and beautiful. How do you find that woman artist who is preparing to essentially, I'm assuming, build a relationship that would include uh, contributing archival materials to the collection? Is, is that the case? Yes, yeah, that is the case. I mean, it, it usually is a is a series of conversations, either through connections with the staff, and then we're, we kind of start, the curator will start conversations, or sometimes uh, our director will start conversations with people to see if they're interested, when they might be interested. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we keep lists of women writers in Maine who we're, we follow and we try to certainly buy their books, but also just kind of keep up with what they're doing. And those are the kinds of relationships uh, in, in the community that might at some point down the road result in us acquiring their papers or donating after a, a certain amount of time, some portion of their papers. I mean, you could essentially develop with a living writer, particularly starting with a, with younger writers, a kind of plan, you know, I mean, uh, where you would simply say, well, I'm going to build a collection for you. And the sale of my books or my reputation beyond is, a, is an entirely different thing that I, I feel that this kind of documentation is, is, is important is in some ways. You're a kind of final reader in a way, you know, if you want your work preserved, here it is in this library. And if it's not in Portland, Maine or Biddeford, it you know, it could be in Alexandria, right? <laughs> I love that. I mean, I love that idea of, of kind of curating a collection for young writers. I mean, I think in some ways that a literary archive like the Maine Women Writers Collection is is a treasure trove for young writers that maybe sometimes uh, some of the younger writers that I know are, you know, focused on their own writing and kind of moving towards publication, but and maybe they might not have an awareness of kind of looking back into the past to see uh, how other people have done it and following you know, through uh, literary history. There is a certainly a proliferation of memoirs. Uh, how many people do we know are are, are writing their memoirs? There is a kind of predilection in this modern world to to tell all, to to confess in a way. I mean, it's a genre now. It's not just a private thing that one does for themselves. It becomes a kind of public exposition, conscious and premeditated. It seems so difficult to me to write memoirs, and I'm always impressed when I read a memoir that is able to capture events in a life and make 
I mean, to me, make it look easy. And I'm sure it's not easy, but writing memoirs seems like very hard work to me. Exactly. Why not to do it? You know, writing, writing, and <laughs> let's just start writing itself. I mean, what is more terrorizing than a, a white piece of paper with nothing on it? I mean, it's, it's a ghost. It's absolutely yeah. horrifying. Do you have any poems or any pieces that you would like to read to that sort of sum this up, this experience up? Do you do you have anything from the collection or anything that you're, you you yourself might have written about the about the experience? Yeah, you know, I thought about that, and there is a piece in my most recent book. It's some, it sums up a sort of fantastical forest library that resonates uh, to me with the work that I find in the archive. It's called Library of the Forest. Many years ago, when it was first put here by those who believed in the magic down the moss, the words formed by lichen that told of how it used to be and how to keep the green green and the tilt in the rock, we were not alive. We found it like this. The books live well in the library of the forest. We haven't added anything. We didn't think it needed it. And so our stewardship is to read on the mossy reclines, to make our way through the volumes left to us. I have taken science and she has taken literature and we will meet in the middle where the birches bend below the rotted pine. She tells me what I've missed. I read to her my favorite passages earmarked with a sap cluster that will last for a very long time. But the forever we have always envisioned does not forever as no forever does. And so we must plan. We don't know who will find the library after we're gone. We wish we could know, could find the right people to take over the task of green and reading. But we haven't seen anyone for years upon years, just deer and squirrels and the occasional edible mushroom that by now feels like a fellow living creature. We're tired, but we're not done yet, but soon will be. We know the library could sit dormant for years, and of course we worry, but we tell ourselves we found it once by chance, and so can others. It only takes the few to carry on the work of reading, of holding this living thing in your heart. Well, doesn't that just sum it up? Uh, write, read, collect, read to each other, read to your children. <laughs> yes. Make yeah. your children write and read to you, tell them to tell you their stories before they get too jaded and forget. Hope that somebody else finds it and picks up the books and gives them some care. The classic vocabulary in the British Museum, where they refer to curators as keepers. And it's a wonderful, archaic phrase, but that's what it means, isn't it? What we're doing is we're, we're keeping. And we're keeping the books alive. We're keeping the memory of the writers and the women alive. Uh, we're keeping the spirit of Maine alive. That's what artists and authors do. That's so well said, Peter. Yes, that's exactly right. Jefferson, thank you so much. This has been 
great. And uh, I hope we'll be forgiven. Uh, but uh, I, I found it a very interesting conversation. Oh, I loved it, Peter. Yeah, I feel like I, I went into uh, your crypt with you here as we were talking about all these books. That was, that was really fun. My guest today has been Jefferson Naviki, the archivist of the Maine Women's Writers Collection at the University of New England, discussing the long history of women writers in Maine, their work well-known and sometimes forgotten, but representing an essential contribution and expression of the unique place and creative spirit of Maine. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Neal. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story. The portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point, There above the circle of pointed firs we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal.